Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, and if you are able, please stand again for the reading of God's Word. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, as we wrap up this section of text this morning. Paul writes to Titus there on the island of Crete, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 3, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. So far we have considered salvation in three of our four parts, the kindness and love of God, the mercy of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and finally this week, if you haven't figured it out yet from the songs we sang, the grace of God. And under this heading of the grace of God, we will consider this morning the need for grace, grace defined, justification by grace, and heirs of grace. First, the need for grace. Margaret Norton was born in Athlone, Ireland, married William Rice at 19 years old. In 1909, the couple moved to Washington in the United States, but her husband sadly passed away in a railway accident. After receiving an insurance settlement, Margaret Rice decided to return to Ireland, where she lived with her five sons until 1911. However, she decided to start over in the United States again with her family and booked a third-class passenger ticket on the RMS Titanic's maiden voyage. They boarded the liner at its final stop of Queenstown, Ireland on April 10, 1912. Tragically, Margaret and her children, aged between 2 and 10, sadly lost their lives in the maritime disaster. A passenger later recalled seeing Margaret in the third-class area of the liner clutching her youngest child, Eugene, while her four other children held on to her skirt. And friends, there is story after story after story of people who have, say, lost their lives while in situations that were completely out of their control some due to natural disasters such as tornadoes or hurricanes or blizzards. There are those who have died by drowning or fire or exposure to heat or cold. There have been those who have perished in tragic accidents. But can you imagine finding yourself in the midst of some very dire circumstances... Circumstances that may even claim your life, and you, you have enough time to realize this, but also to recognize that you are in the position of being absolutely unable to do anything about it. 
You realize that as hard as you might try, there is just no way that you can save yourself. Now, of course, spiritually speaking, this is the predicament that we all were once in. Or, or maybe there is someone here, even this morning, right now, that finds themselves in that very position. But they might not even recognize that they're in this terrible predicament by our own doing we have willingly put ourselves in the midst of some terrible circumstances we have chosen to sin against our holy righteous just creator god and the problem is there's not a thing we can do in and of ourselves to rectify our situation You see, because God is holy and he is altogether righteous and perfect and just. He cannot tolerate sin living in his presence. Sin must be dealt with and God's wrath against it must be satisfied. And the problem is that we read in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 that we were dead In our trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." And this makes sense in light of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, which tells us that as unbelievers, we are in the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. As Bruce Demarest, I quoted him last week, I'm quoting him again this week, writes in his book, The Cross and Salvation, quote, The entire human race is afflicted with objective guilt, alienation from God, and depraved natures that refuse to know, love, and serve the Creator. And to further show you the profound effect of our fully depraved natures, like last week's list that I I gave to you from Demarest's book, uh, showing the effects of regeneration. He also offers the same list for the way our depraved and dead natures affect us. They affect us intellectually. Sinners are unreceptive to spiritual truth. And although the unregenerate know the changing material world, they fail to grasp the full significance of truth from the changeless spiritual realm. We see this in passages like Ephesians 4 and verse 18 and 2 Corinthians 4, 4. I'm just going to toss some of these verses out just because I know we're already running late this morning. And, and so we'll just uh, make a few edits kind of along the way. But we also, we also see how we are affected volitionally. Of our, our, our wills, the unconverted consistently exercise their wills against God and his purposes. We see this in 2 Peter 2.19. 
emotionally because sinners' affections are disordered by the fallen nature, causing them to delight in evil. Or if that sounds too hardcore, sometimes we just allow ourselves to wallow in sinful emotions. Titus 3 and verse 3. Morally, we are affected in our depraved natures. As Ephesians 4.19 says, Paul indicated that sinners, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Ephesians 4.19, and the, the result is that both their mind and their conscience are defiled Titus 1 and verse 15, relationally we see problems because sinners are alienated from their creator and oppose his purposes and values. This estrangement began, of course, back in the Garden of Eden and has continued ever since. And, of course, it affects our relationships with one another. And lastly, behaviorally, the unsaved give themselves to a life of cruel and violent deeds. If you look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. So yes, we were born with what we like to call a sin nature or original sin. Sin passed on to every human being by the curse of God through the head of all mankind Adam. And as you will see, we were born in Adam. He is the representative of the whole of mankind. As he was cursed, so we all are cursed. As sin entered the world through Adam, so we all sin and bear the consequences. Al Mohler on his podcast, The Briefing, was asked the following question, uh, a couple of months ago by a dad who was writing in on behalf of his junior high age children who wanted to know, quote, why do we have a sin nature because of Adam? We didn't commit the original sin, end quote. Moeller responds this way, well, sometimes you'll hear Christians explain that the Adamic root of sin is because Adam sinned, and because Adam sinned, we all sin. The Bible actually teaches that in Adam we sinned. That when Adam sinned, we sinned in him. Muller continues, now that you may say that sounds strange. How can that happen? Well, it's because of what theologically we call the federal headship of Adam. Let me just interject here, this is me now, Jay, interjecting and saying that uh, federal simply refers to a compact, a treaty, or even a covenant between two people who are under a central authority or head. In this case, it's Adam and God's covenant with Adam that as long as he doesn't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he will live forever. But if he eats from that tree, he and the rest of his offspring, that is to say humanity, will surely die. Now, now, just hold on, because if you're out there thinking, well, you know, that's just not fair. That is not fair that we get punished for Adam's sins. Friends, then we are thinking far too highly of ourselves. 
truth is, if we were in Adam's position, we would have done the exact same thing, maybe sooner. And we would have experienced the consequences extending to all. If one player on a football team is offsides, guess what? The whole team is offsides. The whole team is penalized. Back to Moeller, he says, it's a federal headship, which means we are in him, not just represented by him. And by the way, in him, in this case, just reminds us of the fact that the biblical doctrine of creation is absolutely necessary for the entire storyline of the gospel. We are all genetically also in Adam in that sense. In other words, the genetic code for all human beings who would follow, it's effectively in Adam, but this isn't primarily an issue of genes and any kind of biological transfer. This is that federal headship, which is to say, in Adam we sinned. We're dependent upon biblical truth here. We're dependent upon the scriptural revelation and its specific text and scripture that help us to understand this and make it definitive and reveal God's truth to us. It's important that we know ourselves to have sinned in Adam, but remember that the gospel is about two federal heads. End quote. With that, please, you can keep your... Bookmark there in Titus 3, but turn uh, back to the left there to Romans 5 and verse 12. Romans 5 and verse 12. I really believe to appreciate God's grace, we truly need to understand why we have this need for God's grace. In this passage in Romans 5 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul was not one that believed that people were born good and then they gradually turned bad over the course of time. Rather, he spends the opening chapters of Romans saying just the opposite. That there is none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jews and Greeks alike. Which should then leave us with questions like, well, okay, if that's true, then is there really any hope for a thoroughly depraved humanity? Are there no exceptions for sinners who will stand before their righteous creator, judge, with blood on their hands? Is there no way out for those who have transgressed God's perfect standard? And Paul then answers these questions in this text where he traces back our sinful predicament to the first Adam, but then shows us the answers that we are looking for, hoping for, praying for in the second Adam. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. John MacArthur comments, humans are not sinners because they sin. Rather, they sin because they are sinners. Yes. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Just pause there for a moment. So between Adam and 
Moses, of course the law was given through Moses, people in that little chunk of time, you go, are they sinners? Yes, they are sinners with the consequence of physical and spiritual death. But we might say that there's maybe no accounting of their specific sins because there's no law to show them what those sins necessarily are. Then we find out that Adam is a type of him who is to come, which we'll find out in a moment is, surprise, Jesus, right? A type just means that there's a similarity, there's some kind of corresponding nature. Both Adam and Jesus, as we have said then, are are what we would call, or given this name, theologians have given this name, federal heads, with their actions affecting many others in that group that they are head over. All right, keep your bookmark there in Romans 5, and we're going to just jump over real quick to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Get my bookmark there. In verse 21. This is just that. I've said this so many times. It's that incredible chapter about the resurrection of Christ, all of 15. But in 1521, we read this. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. I'm going to skip over to verse 45. Verse 45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. And again, who do you suppose the last Adam is? Jesus. Jeez, that's like the, the answer that all the kids give in all the, the, the kids' uh, Bible classes, right? When the teacher asks for an answer, they figure they've you know, got their bets pretty hedged if they say Jesus, right? Nine times out of ten, they probably got the right answer. Look at verse 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural Then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy, right? Adam. The second man is from heaven. I'm putting in my own parentheses here. Jesus, right? As is the earthy, Adam, so also are those who are earthy. All of us, because we are all in Adam. And as is the heavenly, Jesus, so also are those who are heavenly, those who are in Jesus. You can go from being in Adam to being in Jesus. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy in Adam, we will also bear the image of the heavenly in Jesus. In a tabletop, uh, Table Talk article on this subject for Ligonier Ministries, Guy Prentice Waters writes, quote, Adam and Jesus are representative men. None stands between the first man and the last Adam. And none follows Jesus, the second man. Every human being in every time and place of the world, Paul tells us, stands in representative relation either to Adam or to Jesus. It is in the context of this relationship that what the representative has done, Adam in his sin, Jesus in his righteousness, comes into the possession of, 
of the represented. That would be us, right? End quote. We have representatives in Washington who vote for us. We don't cast the vote. They do. How they vote will directly affect us. What they agree to, we are in a sense agreeing to. What they say nay to, we are saying nay to. All right, turn back to Romans 5. Romans 5, we're going to pick up in verse 17. Romans 5, verse 17. Paul writes, For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, meaning Adam and his sin, parentheses there, death reigned through the one, again Adam, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Referring to those who are in Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life. To all men. Now, now, what you have to realize too about Paul is, is partly his writing style and his use of what we call parallelism, when two things are, are paralleled for a, for a certain effect. In this case, he uses the word all, but with two different meanings in this verse. We know from numerous other places in Scripture that all human beings, past, present, and future, are condemned because of Adam's sin as we are in Adam. The justification of life to all men is not teaching universalism. That all people, present and future, are indeed saved. But certainly Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for all. Paul uses parallelism again in verse 19, which serves as a great summary verse for both Adam and Jesus being our representative Heads in verse 19, Paul says, For as through the one man's disobedience, parentheses, Adam, the many were made sinners, all humanity in Adam, right? Even so, through the obedience of the one, that would be Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Again, those who have been saved by Jesus in Jesus. So, all of this to say, we who are in Adam, which we all once were, right, are unable to save ourselves and we're in dire need of God's grace. Now, this naturally brings us to our next point grace defined. We better define grace a little bit so we know what we're talking about. In the New Testament, the primary word for grace is charis. The definition is simple it means to rejoice or to be glad. And in the New Testament, we understand it as rejoicing brought on by favor, goodwill, or benevolence, especially from the Lord. And this is the root of charisma, or charisma, or charismatic, which simply means good gifts. In the NASB, grace is by far the most common way that charis is translated, but it also appears in the scripture as favor, Thanks or thankfulness, credit, concession, gift, blessing, and gratitude. 
And Hans Strong's lexicon says it's that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, goodwill, loving kindness, favor, benefit, bounty, thanks for the benefits or services, recompense, and reward. Pertaining to God, and Hans Strong's lexicon says that grace is the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues. I like that, end quote. As I mentioned last week, uh, another one of my go-to word sources, the Complete Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament, describes grace juxtaposed with mercy, saying grace is God's free gift displayed in the forgiveness of sins is offered to men in their guilt. God's mercy is extended for the alleviation of the consequences of sin. Grace identifies the free nature of salvation, that which is unmerited and without obligation. Mercy is the application of grace and reminds us that redemptive freedom rescued us from the pathetic condition of our sinfulness. End quote. And as we've often said, grace gives us what we don't deserve, which is, of course, the forgiveness of sins salvation and eternal life while mercy keeps back from us what we do deserve namely death punishment hell the lake of fire or more succinctly grace offers pardon for the crime mercy offers relief from the punishment ephesians chapter 2 if we were to continue on in verses 4 and 5 But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said grace is favor shown to people who do not deserve any favor at all. We deserve nothing but hell. If you think you deserve heaven, take it from me. You are not a Christian. End quote. Continuing on in Ephesians 2, 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. A.W. Tozer has written, Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. Its use to us as sinful men is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, end quote. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
Jerry Bridges defines God's grace as God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. It is the love of God shown to the unlovely. It is God reaching down to people who are in rebellion even against him. Here we are shaking our fists at God and yet he reaches down with his loving grace. Romans 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't didn't wait for us to become good or perfect people. While we were shaking our fists at him, he sent his son to die for us. 1 Timothy chapter, uh, or John Piper, excuse me, says this, grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God, end quote. And 1 Timothy 1 and verse 13 and 14, even though Paul says, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Paul Tripp says about grace, you need it, you can't live without it, but you can't purchase it and you can't earn it. It only ever comes by means of a gift and when you receive it, you immediately realize How much you needed it all along. And you wonder how you ever could have lived without it. Kind of like cell phones, right? (laughs) An unknown author said, anything this side of hell is grace. One of the gifts of God's grace in salvation is our third point. And it's the fact that we are justified by grace. Back in our text of Titus in chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The Greek word here for justify is dikaio. It means to recognize, to set forth as righteous, to declare righteous, to justify as a judicial act. It is a judicial term that means you are acquitted from all your offenses, every last one of them, and you are perfectly restored to favor with your righteous God. Indeed, that slate of offenses that you have been building up since the time of your birth is wiped clean. Even the offenses that you will still commit in the future, wiped clean. And you can now be reconciled with your just God. And mind you, friends, it never means in the New Testament that someone would be able to to make themselves righteous by himself, bearing the condemnation and, and the judgment and the punishment for the crime. We can't do it. So we might ask with Bildad from the book of Job, how then can a man be just with God? 
How can he be clean who is born of woman? How can it be true that what we read in Jeremiah 23 and verse 6, that the Lord is our righteousness? How can a man be righteous, justified by faith, with a wrathful God bearing down on him? Those were the questions Martin Luther was so perplexed by. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, picking up in verse 21. This is that incredibly liberating section about being justified by grace through faith. When Paul writes this in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That just means it's been made visible, conspicuous, known. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now friends, there are some very just incredible truths here about our justification. It is a gift by the grace of God based on Jesus' redeeming work on the cross, and then it's applied to us by faith. Turn to Romans chapter 5. It should just maybe even be the next one, one page over or something like that. Romans 5, but this time in verse 8. Again, we read this great verse. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 tells us that he made him. God the Father made the Son, Christ Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the made. It's not that he, say, made him separate because we know that Jesus, of course, is eternal. But he made him to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is Jesus having sin imputed to him, credited to him, taking our own sin upon himself and then imputing to us His righteousness. Our account then is is credited with his righteousness by means of his death. Demarest in his book again offers uh, just a a great concise biblical summary of theologian J.I. Packer. Which says, quote, God's act of justification 
means negatively that sinners are freed from the penalty of the law and positively that they are reinstated into divine favor and privilege. The former removes remission of all sins, removal of guilt, and the end of divine enmity and wrath. The latter includes bestowal of a righteous status, fellowship with God, and the gift of eternal life. The problem posed by justification is how the immutably, we can interject here and say that means unchanging, just lawgiver and judge can remain righteous in himself and acquit sinners. The gospel communicates that the claims of God's law upon them have been fully satisfied. The law has not been abated or suspended or flouted for their justification, but rather fulfilled by Jesus Christ acting in their name. End quote. On behalf of sinners, Christ in his life perfectly obeyed the law and in his death bore its just penalty. Thus, on the ground of Christ's perfect satisfaction of the law, God does not impute sin. Rather, he imputes righteousness to all who believe. God imputes righteousness to them, meaning sinners. Not because he accounts them to have kept his law personally, which would be a false judgment, but because he accounts them to be united to the one who kept it representatively, and that is a true judgment. That's the end quote. You know, if we want to bring this down to my pea brain level, then here's what I would say. Uh, I was struck about justification when um, <clears throat> up in our uh, up in uh, Weaverville, when we lived up there, um, one of our... Uh, uh, congregants had a, an auto body shop and we had to make a repair on the car and yeah, money was a little a little tight if I remember at that time and and um, so I uh, took the car in and our friend uh, fixed it up and um, I come out to my car to when I came to pick it up and there's the the invoice in the car on my seat and it was zeroed out I thought oh, what's going on so I take the invoice back into the office to uh, see my friend. I said, um, what, what, do I, uh, what do I owe you for this? And he takes a sheet from me, puts it down, and just writes, paid in full. Boom. I just about cried. <laughs> it was just one of those great moments. And, and, and it, you know, you're not going to let something like that uh, be lost on you, spiritually speaking. Our account is paid in full. It has been zeroed out. Our sins are not anywhere to be recognized. They're, they're not on the ledger. Now, I read this other story uh, that was about a, a man in England one time who had a Rolls Royce and wanted to take his Rolls Royce across to Europe. And so he uh, did put it on the boat, got it over to Europe, and the Rolls Royce breaks down. And uh, so he calls Rolls Royce and says, uh, what do I do? And they said, no, no worries. We'll fly a mechanic over to fix it. So they did. They sent a mechanic over. The mechanic came, fixed his car, went back to England. At this point, the guy starts thinking, okay, how much is this going to cost me? 
So when he gets back after his trip, he uh, calls up Rolls Royce and he says, you know, I, I had the mechanic come and yada, 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 and how much? And they go, sir, we have no record of any mechanic ever showing up to Europe to fix a car. It's, it's done, it's gone, it's expunged, right? Our record is clean. Well, this brings us to our last point. We won't spend as much time here just because of time, but heirs by grace, heirs by grace, back in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Maybe you know what it's talking about there because maybe you've inherited something. You were promised something, and whether you realized it or not, if it was something in a will, that thing would then become legally yours. It can't be taken away or, or you can't lose it or give it back. It's yours. And, and thus it is with your salvation. You and I are heirs. We are heirs to the hope of eternal life. And as we so often say the hope that we have is not some like, I hope I win the lottery kind of thing, right? No, it's a sure promise of hope unto eternal life. As Romans 8 says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees, right? So we don't yet see it. We are not yet currently expecting experiencing it so it's still hope as in it's in the future back up a few verses romans 8 verse 17 and if children heirs also heirs of god and fellow heirs with christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him that's an astounding astounding statement that we are heirs of god we are also fellow heirs with Christ. That is incredible. This is the great hope, the great promise that we always, always, always have right there in front of us, right before us. We got to not let it be that, that too distant, man, I can, I can barely see eternity. It's so far away. It's so far down the tunnel and it gets cloudy and gray. And No, it's right here, friends. So what do we do with all this this morning? In realizing that I know a lot of our application over the last three messages is quite similar, I just, I just want you to ponder these things. Friends, if, if you are not, and we're going to go back and look at the, just verses 4 to 7 here, if you are not blown away by the loving kindness of God, I don't know what will blow you away. If you are not amazed over the fact that Jesus would appear on this earth for you, do what he did for you, I don't know what will bring any amazement to you. If you are not humbled, laid low over the fact that there is nothing, absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself except to accept his mercy, I don't know. I don't know what will. If you are not wowed over the fact that you have been washed, you have been regenerated, you have been renewed by His Holy Spirit, I don't know what will. 
if you are not in awe over his justifying grace, I don't know what will bring you awe. And if you are not just completely floored by the fact that you have inherited the hope of eternal life, I don't know what will. And so loved ones, loved ones, if these truths don't just drop you to your knees in praise and thanksgiving and worship, then you need to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, what incredible, tremendous, amazing, awe-inspiring truths that we have been confronted with over these last several weeks to be reminded of just some of the depth of your gospel what it means for us. Lord, help us to be blown away and amazed and humbled and wowed and in awe and just floored and on our knees in praise and worship and thanksgiving to you and your Son. If there is anyone here this morning that needs to now first and foremost put their faith in Jesus, Lord, they've heard the gospel. We pray they would repent. We pray they would believe. And that they would be heirs of the hope of eternal life. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.